I'm Father Mitch Paquin. Welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the words of sacred scripture, and we do so through the lens of the sacred tradition, as well as doing this in terms of our prayer. We're looking at various gospel passages as a meditation on them. And, of course, we would love to have you take part in the show. Besides watching it, you can do so by joining us here in our live studio audience, as these nice folks have done, or you can call your questions or comments in during the live show. If you are in North America, the number is one 800 221 9 Four six zero one eight hundred two two one nine four six zero. If you are outside North America, that number won't work, but you still can call, and the number you call is country code one, area code two o five two seven one two nine eight zero. So one two o five two seven one two nine eight zero. You can also send us questions and comments by email, writing to scriptureandtradition at EWTN.com, or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now, today we are going to conclude the discussion of the miracle of Jesus multiplying loaves and fish, and take a look at how abundantly Christ met people's needs for food, and how afterwards Christ maintains his focus on his original goal of being alone, and his need to enter into communion and prayer with his Father, and to resist the efforts of the crowd to make him a political leader and benefactor. So, let us then take a look at the passage about the multiplication. Remember, we're in Matthew chapter 14. We'll be starting with verse 20. If you want to follow along with this discussion, you can use my book called Praying the Gospels, Jesus, Miracles in Galilee. This is available still at EWTNRC.com, where it is item number 528 5285. So let's take a look at the effects of the miracle of the multiplication of loaves and fish. In Matthew 14, verses 20 to 22, it says, And all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. So let's take a look at this. First, the miracle of the multiplication of loaves and fish was not something say, okay, now take a small piece to make sure everybody gets a piece. No. It was great abundance. There was so much bread 
that there were scraps left over and they were put into 12 baskets. Now, this is something that is very much uh, part of Middle Eastern culture to this day, that you don't want to throw away bread. I've seen this myself with my friends in uh, Jerusalem and elsewhere in the country. If they see a piece of bread thrown on the ground, they'll oftentimes pick it up, kiss it, and then put it in a place where it won't be trampled underfoot. So, uh, you know, if you're walking in the streets of Jerusalem or something, they'll take and they'll put it up on a ledge so the birds can get it without being stepped on. They'd be afraid to get it if there are people walking all over it. I've also seen where they'll take fragments of bread, you know, old bread, stale bread, put it out in the sun to dry even further, and then use it to feed the goats. They don't want anything to go to waste, especially with bread. Bread is the staff of life. It's highly respected in the culture. And this is part of the importance of putting it into the baskets. Also, something that is, again, just a little point, but it adds to it, that the word for the 12 baskets is the Greek word kofinoi, kofinoi. This is a term that refers to a wide weave basket. So the, the, the basket would have big pieces of wood or whatever they're using to make the basket and be wide weave rather than narrow weave, okay? And that is significant because we'll see later on when in the second multiplication of loaves and fish on the other side of the lake, they'll use a different word, spiridion. Spiridion will be used for a narrow wave, weave basket. And that's a spiridas, or spiridion. Um, that's a narrow weave basket. And they'll use that term in Mark chapter 8, verse 8. And why? Well, it's a little detail. I remember one of my professors uh, for a course I had on the Gospel of Mark mentioned that it was a difference of style, you know, that you just varied the terminology for stylistic reasons. That's not the case. I'm afraid I disagree. Otherwise, you know, a superb scholar. But in the um, Sea of Galilee, the west side of the lake is where they catch these St. Peter fish. That's what they still call them, St. Peter fish. And it's tilapia. And uh, this is a fish that grows on the west side because there are warm springs of water feeding it, and it's a little bit warmer water than on the east side. And when Christ multiplies loaves and fish for the 4,000 on the east side, the kind of fish they catch there are a type of sardine. There are about 17 types of fish in the Sea of Galilee. 
And so they catch these sardines on the east side, so they have a narrow weave basket for those fish. Well, on the other side, it's a wide weave because they catch bigger fish. The reason that that's interesting to me is that it shows that the Gospels took for granted the terminology and the words that they received in the oral form of the story. Because these were stories, first of all, told word of mouth. And they took that terminology seriously, and they actually do represent details about the geography and environment of the Sea of Galilee. And it's a little indicator that they're not making this stuff up. They're really dealing with stories that happen for them. So that's, that's important to understand the faithful passing on of the tradition. And then we also see that Jesus sends the apostles away in the boat and he dismisses the crowds because what he wanted to do in the first place was to get away from the crowds and take time off for prayer. Now, this is a very important thing in itself. We all need to have that time of prayer. And this is something that is worth doing. We also note that in John chapter 6, verse 15, there was another element. Notice it says there in the multiplication of loaves and fish, Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This gives a little bit more explanation. They wanted him to be a king that gives them stuff. That's the way the Roman emperor was. The, there were so many slaves that had been brought into Rome that Roman citizens had no work. There were no jobs because the slaves were doing it all. They would capture slaves in other countries, in Greece and Germany and all these other places. And then they did the work and the citizens were out of work. So the emperor would have, would tax the countries. They would have to send grain and then they would make bread and give that to the people. And the people wanted to live off of the government. They didn't want to work. And so that's why you hear them talk about the emperors giving bread and circuses, that they would hold races, you no know, chariot races, horse races. Those are real popular. And of course, the famous uh, games where men would be in combat and kill each other. Um, they would do that, and they'd also give them food. So if you keep them happy, let them eat, let them give them enough to eat, not that they'll be rich, can't let that happen, but they'll have enough to eat, they'll be quiet, and they won't riot. If you don't give them bread, they'll riot. Well, the people loved getting this free bread and fish from Jesus, and they're looking for him to act like the Roman emperor. 
he is not going to be that kind of king. He is not. And if anything, he will call people to be more responsible for their behavior, not less. So that's one of the reasons that he goes away. He wants to be alone too, okay? Now, the conclusion shows that Jesus truly had this wonderful compassion for the people. He really cared for the people. He cared for them in their hunger, and he wanted to meet them. And meeting their needs is his goal. And he's not looking to give them bread and fish so that then they would take him away and make him the king. He's not looking for something for his own sake. He's not giving them things so he'll get popularity. They had come to hear his word. They were without food for a long time, and they wouldn't make it back. So he wanted to care for them in their need, but not use their need in order to gain political power. That, he didn't want to be political. And he wasn't trying to give economic theory either that uh, let's just pray and God will just give us stuff. No, he's not looking for that. This was a situation where people were hungry and he took care of that specific need. Now, this is something for all of us. All of us can look back on the wonderful ways that God has provided for us through life. This is uh, something that everybody can probably look back and say, I, I did so little to have what I have. Sure, I may have worked hard, and yet how often it is beyond what I expected. And some people, especially those who are poor, have to work very hard just to get by because their labor oftentimes is not valued as much as other people's labor. So if you are a computer genius and you invent some computer program, then you can make a lot of money because a lot of it is sold. If you are a poor person doing a very simple job, you're not going to get paid as much. That's just reality. And you work hard, and yet, even in that situation, you realize that God is caring for me. I have enough. I can eat. And I can look back on the wonderful ways God took care of us. Now, here is the, the question. Do we focus on the Lord's compassion and care for us? Or do we focus, like the crowd did, on how to get God to give us more stuff? Do we want to do something that focuses on Jesus Christ, who gives us these gifts, or do we want to focus on the gifts and how I get more of them and how I get rich at getting these gifts?
And this is a temptation, not only for people in the secular world, it's a temptation for religious people as well. Uh, certainly clergy are sometimes accused of doing what they do only for the money. And, you know, that's why I admire people like Rick Warren, who, with all his books and many other things, has made an enormous amount of money. But as he kept making more money, he gave a larger portion of it as a tithe. So he got to a point of giving away 95% so that he didn't get into the ministry to make a lot of money for himself. He recognized that's a trap. And this is a very important thing. Do we stay focused on Jesus Christ or do we focus on the gifts? And do we focus on Christ as the giver and the source of goodness that we receive? Or do we want to focus on what I'm getting out of it? The, the apostles had that temptation. They say, look, Lord, we gave up everything. What are we going to get out of following you? You know, they, they asked him that question after he told the rich young man to go and sell everything he has and give it to the poor and come follow Jesus. And what we need to ask ourselves, and I would do this imagining yourself as Jesus sends the crowds home and they start to make their way and the apostles are sailing across the Sea of Galilee in their boat, that ask him as he's standing there at the shore, am I focused enough on you and on the providence of God the Father or am I turning the attention to me and getting more stuff for me? And it's not for somebody else to answer. It's for you to answer as you stand before Jesus our Lord. You can come up with lots of excuses, but in his presence, coming up with excuses is not a good idea. And one of the things that if we have to ask ourselves, if I am focusing on the gifts instead of the giver, how much do I need to repent? That is truly turn around, stop looking at the gifts and look at God who gives them to us. And think about some of the specific situations in which you have been more focused on the gifts than on the Father who gave them. Ask his forgiveness and perhaps conclude your prayer with the Our Father. That would be a perfect way to do that prayer. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll come back in a couple of minutes uh, with the second part of this and some of your questions, so please stay with us.
welcome back. We are going to continue on in Matthew chapter 14. We'll begin with verse 23 to 25, where Jesus is praying in solitude, and then he walks on the surface of the Sea of Galilee. So let's take a look at the passage. First, in Matthew 14, verse 23, after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking toward them on the sea. Okay, now, this is all a very important passage. And you see the same sequence in John as well as in the uh, Synoptic Gospels, that after the multiplication of loaves and fish, our Lord walked on the surface of the Sea of Galilee. So this is where he sought solitude. Remember, remember what instigated all this? He was trying to get away after he got news that John the Baptist had been martyred. And he wanted to go and pray and listen to the Father about the next step of the mission and what he's going to do. And he, that's why he even sent the apostles away, that they were, went across the sea. And he sent the large crowd away. Now, nothing is said about what he did. But we know from passages that came earlier than this that our Lord would typically pray when he had this kind of solitude, entering into union with the Father. And this is something that is not only necessary for our Lord, he needs that kind of prayer alone, that solitude with his Father. And this is just as true, if not more so, for us. We also need that time during our mission and our vocation to know what the Lord is asking of us. And that's why I've been recommending that you go through these passages and pray through them and use time. And, you know, this is something that uh, I've heard said over the years. Um, it's not always the case, by any means, by any means, it's not always the case. But in plenty of situation but individuals you have priests or religious that leave their state of life they leave the active priesthood or they leave the convent or the monastery and people say oh yeah that one stopped praying some time ago if we lose our time alone with god it becomes easy to lose your vocation, just as, just as a married couple needs to spend some time alone together. You rebuild the bonds. There's busyness in life. And married people are very busy. If it's not the kids, it's the other relatives, it's work, it's all these different strains that pull and a couple has to make sure that they have time alone to talk. 
I'll never forget one couple, they were on a pilgrimage with me, and there was another couple who were newlyweds. The first couple had been, was celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. So they had a lot of experience under their belt. And uh, they asked, were asked, I asked them, what would be some good advice to give this young couple? And they said, here's what we do. As soon as he gets home from work, she was a stay-at-home mom, um, as soon as he gets home from work, we go on the front porch and we each have a drink and we talk about our day for 20 minutes. Then we tackle dinner with the kids and all the other stuff. The kids learn from early on, they have to wait until we sit and talk, go over the day, relax a moment together, and then go on. That kind of time to communicate one-on-one -on -one is extremely important. Well, it's also true in your prayer life, for every way of life. You have to have some time, a few moments, at least, you take some time with the Lord. And it's not only religious and priests that need it, but families. Remember the famous line that Father Peyton used? Somebody else had actually come up with it, but he made it famous and spread it all over the world. Now it's just taken for granted. The family that prays together stays together. He made that the theme of his rosary missions. And he would get families to pray the rosary. And it's really cool when I've been with families and if they have real little kids, you might be able only to say one decade. But they would even get the three or four year olds to say, to lead the rosary. And when they, you know, did the little kids know every word? <laughs> no, no, they didn't. But I figured the angels fi finished off whatever words they had forgotten or not yet quite memorized. Their little prayers as three and four and five-year-olds were extremely precious to God. And it helped build up the family bonds. As I've seen those families grow, they still have. So this is something that we should keep in mind. Secondly, after prayer, our Lord observes that the disciples are in the boat and they're in serious trouble because a squall rose up on the Sea of Galilee. This happens when there's a northwest wind, usually in the springtime. Remember, this was spring. It was right before Passover. St. John makes that clear in John chapter 6. And in those northwesterly winds, when they come as a, as a heavy storm off the Mediterranean and they get to the Sea of Galilee, it's coming down because it's a good 550 some feet below sea level. And as it comes, there's a big valley. It's called the Wadi uh, Hammam the uh, Valley of the Doves in Arabic. And as it comes through, the, the, a chunk of Mount Arbel broke off, probably in some earthquake a long time ago. And it acts, you know, like a funnel. It just focuses the wind right on the Sea of Galilee and it makes big storms. So that, that's how that happens. And, you know, a lot of us, are familiar with this scene of Jesus walking on the water. Um, <laughs> so 
somebody told me that their priest had been to the Holy Land and he said, I saw the sandbar. I saw the sandbar. The sandbar? What are you talking about? I, I have no idea where he saw a sandbar because A, the, the bottom of the sea is pretty gravelly, uh, it's volcanic and such, and B, um, it's, it's kind of deep. Um, it's not shallow. So I don't know what he was thinking. Bless his heart. But at any rate, we need to understand this scene through the lenses of the Old Testament. Take a look at Psalm 77, verses 19 and 20. It says there, your way, and it's speaking to the Lord, to the Lord God, Lord God, your way was through the sea, your path through the mighty waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now this is talking about going through the Red Sea, but here you see it's a reference to the Lord God leading the people through the sea. Another passage that's relevant is in the book of Job chapter 9 verse 8, where it says, He, that is God, alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Now, in the Old Testament, you have these two cases, and there are a couple other passages in Isaiah about walking on water. You know who walks on water? You know the only one who walks on water in the Old Testament? The Lord God. Only God walks on water. And for our Lord Jesus, to walk on the water is already a sign, a visible sign that he is God. That's one thing. And this is something as he goes out to meet the apostles on the Sea of Galilee, walking out there, he's doing what only God can do. Just as he multiplied the loaves and fish as only God can do, now he is also walking on the water. And in this, while he is demonstrating his own personal desire for contemplation and union with Father, he also still has compassion for people who seem to be abandoned by God. They seem to be in danger. They seem to feel alone. And this is something that we ought to consider, that... First of all, when did you experience the Lord as being most close to you? It's good to remember that. When was the closest time? Was it on a retreat? Maybe during a holy hour or some time of prayer? Some other time alone? When did you feel particularly close? And then what I'd like you to do is imagine yourself, use your imagination and be as vivid as you can to be with our Lord in this kind of solitary prayer. Recall some of your own most memorable moments with God and 
what would you say to God now in reflection? What would you say to him about those times of prayer? And what would, you, what would he say to you about private prayer? What does God look at your prayer as being like? What's his attitude toward your time of prayer? Also, think about those times you're like the apostles in the boat and you feel abandoned to the storm, abandoned by God. A lot of times people feel that. You know, dangerous things and, and horrible experiences. Last week, I had contact with two different families where one of their teen children committed suicide. You know, this, uh, talk about feeling abandoned. Those poor kids, I'm sure, felt that. I know in one case he, he did. He left a note. Um, and to have a sense of that abandonment and especially about when you're doing exactly what God asked you. Remember, Jesus told the apostles to go into the boat. Now they would feel abandoned to the storm. Picture Jesus walking towards you at those moments of abandonment. When you're on the storms of life, imagine our Lord walking toward you in these difficult situations. What would you say to him as he approached you? What would you say? And what might he say? What would be his response? We might say, why would you let me go into danger? But what might he say back? I don't know. I don't know. But I think it would be worth bringing that to prayer and seeing this from his perspective. And then, again, end with our prayer, the prayer of Ignatius called the soul of Christ, sanctify me, body of Christ, save me, blood of Christ, inebriate me, water from the side of Christ, wash me, passion of Christ, strengthen me. All right, let's take a look at some of your questions. I'm going to start off with an email. This is from Michelle in Virginia. She says, Dear Father Mitch, does Jesus still perform miracles? I have really bad leg pain. And I've been asking Jesus for a miracle, and it feels like he's not hearing me. Is it the way I'm asking or praying that's the problem? What should I do? Michelle in Virginia. Well, Michelle, um, you're asking in faith. You're doing what you should do. You know, you're not necessarily doing anything wrong. Um, you know, you, uh, and he hears you. You can be sure of that. But, you know, you think, so, sometimes I think back, um, matter of fact, I was reminded by one of the former employees who was here after Mother Angelica was healed of her leg problems. And Remember, she had asked for that healing in the 1950s. And she got a, she was able to walk. So it, that's what, and that's what she had said to our Lord back then. If I can walk after my surgery, 
I'll open a convent in New York. I'm in New York. That's another place. I'll open a convent in the South. Open, because it was a time of racial turmoil. And she wanted to intercede against the racial turmoil and pray for peace. And so she could walk, but she had, you know, all these braces and stuff. But it was enough. She said, okay, I can walk. So she worked hard, scraped together money, making fishing lures. And then she came here and opened up the convent. And it grew and eventually became EWTN. But then it was in the 90s that she got completely healed, the late 90s at that. So the request uh, for that healing took a long time. And in between all that, there was a lot of other things that happened. I don't know why the Lord took so long with Mother. I don't think she knew at the time. She didn't, but she was able to walk around and dance around with no more braces. And she just celebrated that. But meanwhile, before that, she offered her suffering up for a lot of people, including for the success of the network. I don't know why this happens uh, and the timing that God uses. Don't know. And mo I doubt that many people do. Sometimes in retrospect, sometimes after years later, it makes sense. But it doesn't mean that you're not doing it right. And don't let anybody say, well, if you just had a little more faith, you'd get it. I, don't let people blame you for that. If you know of a sin, repent. But otherwise, ask in faith. Trust that the Lord is even using your ailment and keep turning to him and see what he has in store. But it's not about you uh, being without faith or being bad or anything like that necessarily. Um, it's just a matter there may be a larger plan than what you and I can see, okay? Wish I had more for you than that, but as I always say, I'm only in sales. God is management. Let's go to a call. We have Pat calling from the great state of New York. Pat? Yes, I'm here. Great. Yes. What can we do for you? Um, uh, in, in speaking about the Old Testament now, not mm -hmm. the New Testament, just the, old, the mm -hmm. word allegoric, what does that, can you tell me what that means in sure. reference talking about the Old Testament, allegoric? Yeah, the, first of all, an allegory means that you make an analogy with a story or an example and that each point of the analogy has a specific point in the reality you're talking about. Now, in the Old Testament, there are a number of allegories. Um, that there's the allegory, for instance, of the trees that is used when 
um, one man uh, tries to become king. And uh, an allegory, it's found in the book of Judges, I think right around chapter 9 or 10. And um, I'll look it up during the break. And it's, that's an allegory. But the Old Testament is not so much an allegory of the New Testament. It's rather a precursor that there, the Lord was preparing the way. He prepared Israel with all kinds of institutions and experiences that prepare the way for the New Testament as, as forerunners. So the kings were anointed with oil and so were the prophets. And that's preparing the way for understanding Jesus our Lord as being anointed with the Holy Spirit. And we, you can go on and on that those kind of precursors in the Old Testament are preparing the way for the new. That's it, the direction it's heading toward the Messiah and the salvation of the world. And there are lots of things you can learn from those experiences that are analogous to components of the New Testament. And that's one of the things we try to study. Okay? All right, we'll take a little break and we'll come back in just a couple of minutes, so please stay with us. Welcome back. And before we get to our next questions, I want to invite you to join me for EWTN Live tomorrow night at 8 p.m. That's Eastern Time. And we'll be speaking with Chad McEachran, who is the president and CEO of the Edmundite Missions, and talk about how the Edmundites share the love of Christ in an effort to meet the ever-changing needs of people in extreme poverty in the deep south. You know, some, some parts of the south have 20% unemployment. You know, it's very serious. So we want to do what we can to help folks in those situations, and we'll talk about that. All right, let's, we have another caller. Uh, Mary is calling from the great state of Michigan. Mary, where in Michigan are you? Mary, you there? Saginaw. There you are. You're from Saginaw. We're over there on the east side. Good, good to have you. My brother lives on the west side of the state. So what can we do for you today? I just want to know if after we die, are we going to see our loved ones in heaven? Well, if they're in heaven, you will. If they're not, you won't. You know, that, that really is the, the simple part of it. And here's going to be one of the great things, that you, your loved ones 
will be loved. You'll love them far more than you did in this life. But it won't be an exclusive love for them. You'll, it's not like you'll be a family unit getting your own little house or something. Sometimes we have uh, various missionaries from on Saturday coming through and telling us about how you can have uh, a perfect world with no uh, hunger and sickness and death, and yet you'll get a nice little, they'll show pictures of a little bungalow in a yard and the animals are all happy around you and such as that. And that's the problem. No, no, you are going to be with all the saints and you are going to have a tremendous love for everyone and an even greater love for family members, spouses, children that may have died ahead of you, parents that died before you, all of these friends that you had. If they're in heaven, they'll love you and you'll love them way more than you ever did on earth. So yeah, you'll be with, if they're in heaven, you'll see them and, and love them dearly and cherish them. Uh, they, they, if you uh, take a look at the book of Revelation chapter 6, you see how the martyrs still have concern for their friends on earth. Uh, we will have concerns for our friends and loved ones on earth, but also have tremendous love for our friends and relatives in heaven. So that's something to look forward to. Um, though I've also had people say that, well, my friends are probably going to be in hell. Maybe I should join them. I said, no, 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 no. That's not a good idea. Because if you did join them in hell, A, they would hate you. Because everybody, that's the nature of hell. Everybody hates each other. And secondly, they will spend the rest of eternity blaming you for getting them there and you'll probably blame them. So uh, this, that's why you don't want to be with any friends or relatives that went to hell. You want to do everything you can to get to heaven yourself and bring your friends and relatives with you. Because in hell, they hate each other. In heaven, they truly love each other tremendously. Okay? All right, we have a question from our studio audience. <clears throat> Father, where are you from? I'm from uh, Grand Forks, North Dakota. Great, great. It's not much of a North Dakota accent I hear. No, I, I grew up in Queens, New York. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now that's familiar. So what can we do for you today? Well, um, I, I was uh, thinking about the comment you made about how much respect the uh, Mideast custom is for uh, bread and scraps mm -hmm. and they don't let anything <laughs> go to waste. Mm -hmm. But also, I mean, I've, I remember commentaries, and I've used them in homilies myself, unfortunately, that, you know, uh, Lazarus the, uh, and the rich man, Dives, Dives, that there were scraps on the floor. Mm -hmm. And I also heard a uh, comment that, you know, in the, when they ate food, they didn't have paper towels like we have. And so uh, what they would do is they would use the bread to wipe their hands with, mm -hmm. and I, I guess after you wipe your hands with the bread, I, I don't know. <laughs> right. So, 
And that, that's, that is uh, apparently correct, but only the rich would do that. That they would, you know, have the luxury of being able to take a piece of bread and wipe, you know, any gravy, any pieces of meat or any sauces off their hands with bread that Lazarus would have been delighted to eat, but the dogs were eating. And keep this in mind, this is not unusual for the rich. Not unusual. Think of, you know, the, the, the visuals from the council in Davos, Switzerland, a few weeks ago, where all these super wealthy people, multi-billionaires galore, they're all telling us we have to reduce our carbon emissions. They want everybody else to reduce how much they are spending of their money and things on expendables. Meanwhile, they don't believe it. These people don't believe that. The people said they don't believe a word of that because they flew there on private jets. There were over 100 private jets. If they believed that there was this big crisis of the environment, they would have taken their bicycles up that mountain. But they didn't. They flew private jets. It's like people that, you know, even former President Obama, he's worried about global warming making the oceans rise, but he spent $30 million on a house on an island next to the ocean. Now, he doesn't really believe it. And the same thing would be with rich people in those days who didn't believe that bread was special, but the poor do. It's precious to them because this is what they live on. And that's why they would have been happy to eat something that he wiped his hands off. They'd get a taste of his gravies that they wouldn't have. So some people who have too much haven't changed. Not all. Many rich people are very generous, but there's some phony balonies. We have another, another priest. Father, where are you from? I'm from Little Rock. Little Rock. But I'm original from Venezuela. I was going to say, that's more South kind of accent than even Little Rock. <laughs> <laughs> way so South. Way South in Venezuela. <laughs> so what can we do for you today? Um, my question is, when Jesus sent his disciple to the other side of the sea, and, and then when he got there, people, the, the gather asking, mm -hmm. where did you come from? Mm -hmm. Where did you can come in? Mm -hmm. They are waiting for him. And Jesus got so mad, so upset. Right. Why? Remember what he said? Yeah, you're he, not looking for me. You're looking for more bread. See, these were folks who wanted him to be a bread king. Yeah, that was really good bread, too. When you multiply loaves and fish, that's a good recipe. Keep it coming, and we'll make you king. It's, and they keep, if you keep following the conversation, they kept going back. Well, yeah, give us a sign. How about uh, more bread? You know, they, that's what they're looking for, and that's why he's upset. They are so focused on getting free stuff from Christ the king that they don't focus on Christ the king. And that's why he's upset. He's trying to lead them to faith. 
This is the work you must do to believe in God and in the Son he sent. And this is what you do. I will give you the bread of life, my own flesh. And then they walk away. That's why he's upset. They want to reduce everything to what they want for themselves. And this isn't wise. This is folly. You have to take your own role. Just like I had said last week, our Lord did what only God can do, multiply loaves and fish. But he told the apostles to distribute it. They had to do what they could do. He did what only God could do. And we have to keep that in mind. We have to do what our part and let God do what only God can do. All right. Well, one of the things that is part of our part is deal with the fact that we run out of time. So may the Lord bless you all and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's very wonderful that you've given us all of this support over so many years, 40, over 40 years now. So please remember to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. And then we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. God bless you all and thank you. Thank you.